Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, December 20th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, Regulators are taking a closer look at the buy now, pay later space. And we've got a listener question on where to put non-stock portfolio money. Joining me this week, it's Fool.com writer, recovering attorney and financial planner, Mr. Dan Kaplinger. Dan, thanks for being here. Hey, Jason. Glad to be here. Always good to be here, especially around the holidays. And I hope uh, holiday season's treating you well, too. Yes, sir. So far, so good. I think we've got close to all of our Christmas shopping done. The weather is still delightful. It's not so frightful yet. So hopefully we're, we're working our way into a nice Christmas week here. I hope, I hope we can say the same for you. It's been good here. It's, it's getting colder, but uh, I've decided to become a, a, a ski person this year for the first time. <laughs> so I'm actually enjoying it. First time, first time ever? Well, not for so 20 years ago, I took a, a free lesson and then I moved away and now I'm back, but I've been back for 15 years and I just never did it. And so I'm sort of like, okay, let, let, this is dumb. You know, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm shoveling the snow off my driveway, I should be at least enjoying it on the slopes. I feel, yeah, I feel, I, I feel you there. You're cause you're up in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel you there. I mean, I grew up skiing with, with, I mean, I grew up in South Carolina, but fortunately had parents that, that, uh, took us, took us out West for some vacations. And so I had a lot of fun learning how to ski growing up and, and, you know, fast forward to today. And I, I feel like I'm the only person in my family who has any interest in skiing, which means that we don't go skiing anymore, <laughs> but, uh, maybe, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. I am not getting any younger. Dan, last week, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau announced that it is seeking information from a firm, Afterpay, Klarna, PayPal, Zip, on the risks and the benefits of their Buy Now, Pay Later products. Now, this Buy Now, Pay Later, or BNPL, as we like to call it, uh, space, this this is a new space, uh, yet it, it doesn't seem so new because it almost seems like just something we're very familiar with, but by another name. Um, there are a lot of different ways to to get at this. And, and I'd love to, first and foremost, just understand your big picture view on this BNPL space. Do you like it? Do you not like it? And, and, and why or why not? You know, it's funny. When I first heard of these companies that their big innovation was, gee, let's take something and just take a purchase that you could make all at once and break it into four payments, I was sort of like, okay, that's going to be the big innovation of the world here. I mean, you know, it, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal to me, but uh, that, that shows you just how in tune I am necessarily with the connection between the real world and, and stock prices, because, you know, it, it, it's a huge deal. People yeah. love it. People love the opportunity to take something that they can't afford all at once and say, hey, you know, I don't have... 40 bucks, but I've got 10 bucks and I'll probably have 10 bucks next month and the month after that. And so let's get her done with these, uh, with these buy now pay later deals, as you alluded to, you know, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the idea of, you know, layaway purchases, you know, going way back, way back when, when if you wanted to buy something big, like a, like a lawnmower or tractor or something like that, 
then you could go to the store and say, hey, I don't have enough money to buy it now, but let me start making some payments on it. And eventually you get to the point where it was paid, you get to take the thing home and it was all good. Buy now, pay later is even better than that. You don't have to wait to take it home. You get to take it home right away. So that's kind of a nice deal. Um, but it's it's been fascinating to me just how quick on the uptake uh, folks have been with this, both on the consumer side, especially younger folks, they seem to, to love it. They love it better than credit cards, which, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I'm a big credit card, charge things up, pay it off at the end of the month. I tend to try to get rewards cards that give me something, whether it's air miles or something like that. So that to me, you know, that's the 50 year old me. That's my way of doing stuff. But for the 20 and 30 year olds out there, this seems to be the wave of the future that, that they love so much. And that's why we've seen so much interest in a firm. It's why we saw Square. It's now Block by Afterpay. And it's been a huge winner for investors who got in on that trend early, even with some of the big stock pullbacks that we've seen in those stocks over the past month, two months or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I I hear what you're saying. I mean, I'm with you. Like, I I I tend to just use credit card products, right? I mean, I've got a couple of credit. I've got an American Express card I've had for 20 years. I've got a, a an Amazon Prime Rewards card that I use frequently, and and I'm with you. I mean, I use them. I pay them down. I collect the rewards. I mean, it's a nice symbiotic relationship that just sort of, you know, I don't have any problem with it, right? And it feels to me like it feels to me at least like this this idea of buy now pay later um perhaps one of the more attractive parts of it and i feel like these companies have done a good job in 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 creating this narrative is that credit cards charge you interest and fees that's bad buy now pay later you can get what you want now pay for it later and there're not going to be any fees and that's good now we know that's not just a writ large statement, right? I mean, some of these buy now, pay later products definitely do have fees and or late charges, uh, depending on the situation. Um, I, I wonder as time goes on, you know, one of the statistics I've seen uh, is is that to this point, you know, you're looking at a, a considerable number of folks who have missed at least one payment on a buy now, pay later purchase already, right? And they're using multiple buy now, pay later products. In other words, they're not loyal to just the PayPal offering or the Afterpay offering or the Affirm offering. It seems like they're using a lot of them, kind of like they're collecting a lot of credit cards and using a lot of credit cards. So debt at the end of the day is debt. I think that we could all pretty much agree on that. And maybe in the near term, maybe maybe the hook for a lot of these buy now, pay later uh, firms is that they are they are giving you sort of this this new way to use debt without being charged necessarily these exorbitant fees. I also feel like that doesn't last forever, right? I mean, you know that old saying: nothing, there's no free lunch, Dan. I mean, like it, it, everything comes at a cost, and at some point or another, as we see this interest rate environment start to go up, as we see the cost of doing business start to go up, it's not going to surprise me at all. Particularly if we continue to see customers or consumers. You know, they're either missing payments or late on payments. I think as time goes on, there you're going to see those particular individuals being targeted and saying, you know what, you're a bigger credit risk. Therefore, you're going to be charged fees uh, in order to finance this purchase because you've got a track record of not being so reliable. And, and that goes to another point here where we're seeing Equifax wanting to uh, incorporate these buy now, pay later purchases into consumers' credit records, which I think makes a lot of sense because I think, again, it is a 
It is it is it is tangible consumer behavior, and and so for me, I I, I wonder how sustainable this is. I don't know what 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 do you think? Yeah, I I agree with all those points. I'm going to invert a little bit because you focused quite correctly on the consumer aspect of it, but there's a big aspect of this that's really between the buy now pay later companies and the merchants and their interactions with credit card merchant services and all that. I think that yeah. the the issue that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau brought up, it was really helpful. It's, it's a good uh, kind of release to look at because it really does reveal some of the business model that a firm and Afterpay and these companies are all trying to do. Basically, merchants pay between 3% and 6% upfront to those buy now, pay later companies in order to uh, you know, in order to extend what amounts to that short-term credit. Now, that might seem like a lot, but it turns out, as the CFPB points out, it's very similar to the interchange fees that merchants pay off the top when you use a credit card to pay. And sure. it's those interchange fees that finance those nice, you know, 1%, 1.5%, 2% cash back rewards that, that you and I are getting, Jason, on those credit card purchases. And so from the merchant perspective, it's not necessarily all that much different. Meanwhile, the merchants are saying they're getting big increases in the amount of people of uh, money people spend on products when they go to the services they can offer these buy now, pay later products. And since the stores are getting paid, they don't really pay much attention to, well, is the customer actually making that payment? That's, that's beyond them. They've gotten their payment up front. Yeah. That's all in the buy now, pay later company to deal with. Now, when you hear interviews from the folks at the buy now, pay later companies, they're talking about how it's different from a credit card model because at least in theory, every single time that you or I go to a buy now, pay later service and try to buy something, whether it's for 40 bucks or 400 bucks or however much it is, that's an individual credit decision that the buy now, pay later company can assess. And they can just basically say, well, yeah, we, we gave you this before, but we're not going to give you this one because reasons. And I think that's part of what the, the CFPB is kind of looking at is, well, what are the reasons? How is the past history getting used? How much of this is really more about data collection and the ability for buy now, pay later companies to make lucrative partnerships with big merchants to kind of enhance their businesses and kind of the symbiotic relationship? How much of it is about that? And therefore, how much protection does a consumer need both from any individual buy now pay later company and from sort of those broader personal finance issues with regard to getting too much debt because you can use any number of these apps and they're not talking to each other and until Equifax is now trying but until then they're not necessarily talking to credit reporting agencies and so you know it has impacts on credit card companies because credit card company doesn't necessarily know you've got this buy now, pay later debt because it's in this different ecosystem. It's kind of, you're right that as everybody realizes this is a trend that's here to stay, it's going to have to get incorporated into the entire financial system. And when that happens, yeah, there's a big question about, is it going to be able to survive if it has to be on the same playing field as all these other existing payment methods that have been around for so long, subject to regulation, all kinds of things. It'll be interesting to see. 
Yeah, I certainly understand your point there from the merchant's perspective. I mean, it's it's almost, I don't want to say a zero risk situation, but essentially they're kind of getting a guarantee up front there. And, and the onus then, the burden is, is left to the actual buy now, pay later firm. And, you know, if that's PayPal, that's one thing because PayPal is an extremely diversified business, right? I mean, you've got PayPal, you've got Venmo, you've got Zoom, the, the money remittance, the, the remittance company uh, dynamic to it. So their, their buy now, pay later offering is just something they built organically. I mean, which I, I thought was, I thought was the right way to approach it. I mean, to me, you build something out like that and you see if it works and if it could become a little, meaningful driver of the business over time, then that's great. That's a big win. And if not, well, you know, I mean, you probably can you take some learnings from it, but overall, it's it's not something that really uh, hurts the business too much. You know, the other side of that coin there, uh, you look at Block, for example, formerly known as Square, and I wonder if we're not going to see that name change here soon. You've seen that that lawsuit that H&R Block filed recently on Block. <laughs> I, I keep thinking maybe they're going to have to go to Cube next, but we'll wait and see, Dan. Uh, but, but you look at something like Block, and they make that acquisition of Afterpay for $30 billion, which just seems insane, right? And, and so now they're on the hook for that. And if the spy now pay later space doesn't shake out to the upside that maybe a lot of these folks think it may, uh, and it's reasonable to at least question that it would, uh, you know, then all of a sudden that $30 billion acquisition looks like a lot of goodwill sitting on your balance sheet that you ultimately have to write off. Now, you know, goodwill is goodwill, whatever, but, but it's worth remembering Square issued a lot of shares, or Block issued a lot of shares to finance that purchase. Uh, and then you see a business like a firm that really is solely uh, buy now, pay later. So that's kind of their one specialty, and so you can see you can see a broad spectrum there of of sort of risk reward plays in that fintech space. You know, if you're a believer in buy now, pay later, versus if you feel like you think it's got potential, right? Maybe you invest in something like a PayPal because you see the potential uh, if they succeed, but you can see definitely more risk uh, to something like in a firm with maybe a middle of the road kind of risk there with blocks. So. Uh, yeah, it'll be a fascinating space to watch uh, shake out here, and I, I agree with you. I think these networks, the key is they're gonna have to be able to communicate with with each other because right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. You got a big problem. I'll just leave you though. I mean, you know, from a growth standpoint, these these businesses have been sensational. After pays revenue, I looked it up, up 36 times between 2017 and and now. A firm's revenue almost quadrupled just since 2019, just two years ago. So yeah. it's easy to see why a why a block is sort of like, yeah, this is the this is the wave of the future. It's got demographics in its favor. But you're right. I mean, you know, if it goes well, then it's good. But if it doesn't go well, then it's another one of those kind of historical blunders that that you see some companies do and will, you know, is is block can block recover from it if that happens sure because they've got this the rest of their business but at least at this point a firm is you know it's kind of it's the pure play so you get the upside but you get the downside too yep well dan we've got a listener question we get this we get this question a lot not only from listeners uh but from members subscribers and we get this question often friends family <laughs> uh the 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 interest rate environment that we that we've witnessed here over the last decade plus really has been one that 
makes you ask why anyone would put their money in a CD or a money market savings account. Uh, just there's zero return there, and, and I think that's that's one of the arguments for the stock market these days. Really, is that's where the the best opportunity uh, still is. Uh, now, with that said, I mean we're not all at the same stage of life. We get plenty of investors out there who. Maybe they're getting a getting a little bit older. Maybe they're kind of moving into that protect your wealth uh, stage of life. But but we get questions all the time about where to put non stock portfolio money. I mean, people have money out there. They they don't necessarily want to commit to the market um, based on their timeline, based on their risk tolerance, whatever that may be. But what do we do with that non stock portfolio money, particularly in this interest rate environment today? And we were we were. Talking a little bit back and forth before the show, and this is something that you and and Robert Brokamp talk often about, and and I, I thought it was really a interesting suggestions you had there. But let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this. Where where do you suggest investors put that non stock portfolio money today? So in the past, what we've always recommended is looking at high yield savings accounts and CDs uh, for you know insured bank insured federally insured money that you want to have. Either for retirees, a lot of time we're suggesting, you know, a three to five year cash cushion. So if you get a, an extended stock market downturn, you don't have to sell stocks at a loss. You can kind of draw off of that cash. Unfortunately, they they haven't changed the name of high yield savings account uh, because really it's a <laughs> low yield savings account right now. You're lucky to get like a zero point five percent or something like that. And so. The interesting opportunity right now is in an investment that a lot of people don't think of as an investment. And I know that people of a certain age uh, will see this as sort of a, a, something that they think of as uh, you know, like a grandpa or grandma gift to grandkids. We're talking about U.S. savings bonds, and specifically the Series I savings bond is linked to the inflation rate. Now, a lot of folks have heard about inflation lately. It was a non-starter, is not on the radar at all for most of the past 40 years. But now inflation is back with a vengeance. And what the, because these, invest, these Series I savings bonds are tied to the inflation rate, if you go out and buy a Series I savings bond right now, you will get an interest rate guaranteed, federally guaranteed, 7.12%. Wow. Now that, that rate is good for six months. What happens in six months depends on what happens with the inflation rate going forward. If the consumer price index goes up, then the interest rate on that I bond is going to be in line with the, with the amount of that increase. If inflation suddenly reverses course, like the Federal Reserve has been kind of hoping lately, um, that you will never lose money. The interest rate never goes below zero. There may be six-month periods in the future because these Series I savings bonds, the rate changes every six months. You might go for a six-month period with no interest, but the idea is it's protecting your purchasing power. And that's something that traditional fixed income investments right now, it's just not, it's just not doing it. When you've got a treasury, a treasury bond, it's yielding 2%. And you have CPI up six percent. That's minus four percent. I mean, that's four percent of purchasing power is going away each year. And yes, I don't think that inflation is going to stay at this rate for very much longer. But there is a good possibility that we will see some continuing inflation. So these Series I savings bonds have a lot going for them. They're not cash though. Once you buy them, you have to hold them for a year. If you sell them out before five years, there's a three-month penalty. And then the only other thing is there's a $10,000 limit 
on the amount of Series I savings bonds you can buy. So for somebody with like a million dollar portfolio, they're looking to put 10 or 20% aside into bonds. This isn't really going to be that much of a needle mover, but for younger folks with smaller portfolios, or if you are just kind of looking for someplace to put a little extra cash, this is definitely something to think about. It's not just stocks, folks. Always nice to know there are options. Dan Kaplinger, thanks so much for taking the time to join the show today. Glad to be here as always, Jason. Have a good holiday. You too. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks as always to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Dan Kaplinger, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening.